like I said, we're in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to finish up the kenosis passage. Um, I de decided to break this up a little bit because there's a lot in here. And uh, so it's, it's good to take our time and study through it. Uh, we have Philippians 2, 5 through 11 at the top of the, the page. I'm going to ask someone to read that for us. Nathan, go ahead. So just to recap where we're at, um, in chapter 2, uh, Paul starts out with some rhetorical questions, if there's any hope, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort or love. And then he says, if there's all these things, the, the command is that to fulfill his joy is really the command there, but the idea is fulfill my joy by being unified as a body of, of believers, by having the same mind, having the same love, and he, he goes through that. Um, then in verse 3, um, he starts talking about, he gives us uh, these subjunctive commands. Um, so he says, uh, um, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Verse 4, let each of you look not only for your own interest, but also the interest of others. And then verse 5, he talks about that let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. Um, and we're going to go through that a little bit more in just a second. But verses 5 through 8, uh, Paul's relating, okay, this is the mindset you're supposed to have. Christ is your example of how you are to be thinking about how your attitude should be. And he talks about how, how Christ, being God, did not consider robbery, did not consider something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but he humbled himself, and he humbled himself even uh, to the point of being obedient to death, and that being the death of the cross. And so... As we look at this, and we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to focus on what this tells us about Christ, the theology in here. But the idea of what Paul's talking about is he says, let this mind be in you. So as we study about Christ, the application for us is that we ought to be thinking the same way. We ought to be focusing on what Christ's attitude was, what Christ's thought process was, and as believers, we ought to think the same way as that. Um, so Paul considers the mindset of Christ as he came into the world to be our sacrifice so that we could have eternal life. Now as we go into verses 9 to 11, Paul turns from discussing how Christ humbled himself and died for us uh, to the glory that he receives from the Father because of his obedience. And I want to consider that this morning. We're going to focus on that part of it. And then what application does it have to us? Because remember, this is still in the context of let this mind be in you which is also in Christ. So what does that mean that he talks about this? Because he could have stopped at verse 8 and said, look, Christ's humble, selfless attitude that led him to be obedient to God, to die for our sins, that's what you're supposed to have, period, end of story. So why does he bring this up here? I think there's a point to it. Um, so Philippians 2, 1 through 8 is there. I'm not going to read that. I just put it in there so we have it as reference. Um, and then these are the, in your point section there, these are the points we brought up in previous lessons. Verse 1 was the affirmed proposition that if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, these are all true 
of us in our relationship to God that we have all these things from God. So these are affirmed, and the answer to this is, yes, there are these things. So then he gives this command for unity in verse 2, which we already talked about. Um, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, that that's what Paul wants us to be. Um, then we get to the next part, and there's these three lets, and these are three uh, commands in this subjunctive form, but the idea carries the weight of this should be happening, this, this ought to be happening. Um, so the, verse 3, the command is to think of others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliest mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You think of others as better than yourself. You put importance on serving others and seeing the needs of others. Uh, verse 4 is a focus on others. Uh, let each one of you look out, not out, uh, look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. You know, what, what are their interests? What are their needs? We're supposed to be doing that. And then, of course, where we're at now, the command of Christ's mindset, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And we saw that he has a selfless mindset in verse 6, a mindset of a servant in verse 7, and a humble mindset in verse 8. Again. I would say let's super glue this on, but then if we have to take it off, it would be a bad thing. Um, anyway. So that's where we're at. So we come to verse 9, and verse 8 ends with, he, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So then as we get to verse 9 here, verse 9 starts with a therefore. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Well, there's a point to him saying therefore there. And we're going to look at, I call this Christ rewards. I don't know if this is the best word to use here. Um, It's not really probably the word I wanted, but I, I, don't, I struggle with getting the right word sometimes. But, but what, what happened because of this? And, and you look at the therefore, um, that therefore God has done certain things. God the Father has done certain things for the Son. And the question has to be, uh, God the Father rewards Christ. Why is that? Why does he do that? And the therefore answers that. Therefore, it goes back to what's previous in the passage. What's previous in the passage is he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, because of his selfless attitude, because of his servant attitude, because of his humble attitude. All these things led him to be obedient to God the Father, that he would die for us because that was the Father's will for him. Um, and so because of Christ's mindset, which led to his humble obedience, that's why God goes ahead and says, because of this, these are the things I'm going to do. Um, so what did he do? Well, first of all, he's highly exalted. Um, this word exalted has the idea to be raised to the highest position. It's to be lifted up above all things. Um, and we see this in a number of passages. In fact, one that's not on your sheet. Um, if you go to Colossians chapter 1. Um, Let's start in verse 16. If somebody would read Colossians 1, 16 through 18 for us. We have a volunteer to read. Ted, go ahead.
And if you actually look previous to that, it talks about how he, we have redemption through his blood. So all this leads to the point that in verse, 15, uh, verse uh, 17, he's before all things, and him all things consist. And then in verse 18, it talks about him having the preeminence. He is above all things. He's first place in all things. And this is true that God has exalted Christ and given him this high position, this very high position, because of his obedience. Um, and so let's look at a couple other passages. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. Another reader, please. Go ahead, Josiah. And you see here, um, when you raise him from the dead, look at all the things that characterize that Christ has a high position. Uh, first of all, it says he's uh, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, why is the right hand important? Well, the right hand is the place of authority. The right hand is a place of honor. This is the place of uh, giving someone a preeminent position. They're at the right hand. We use the term his right hand in man, being like, you know, this is the guy he trusts. This is the guy who um, is like a second command type idea. Well, this, it carries kind of a similar idea. In fact, um, there's, a, there's a character in the Bible that uh, his name has uh, the term right hand in it. Does anybody know who that is? This is son, and this is right hand. Now, why would Benjamin be named that? Well, think of the circumstances he was born into. Remember, uh, this is uh, um, Jacob's children, and he had Leah and Rachel as his wife, and then he had a couple of handmaidens who he had children with. Um, Rachel was barren. Well, when Rachel finally conceived, the firstborn was Joseph. And remember, Joseph, he was honored. He was uh, given most of his father's affection. In fact, he gave him a multicolored garment to wear. And his brothers became jealous. And they uh, were going to kill him. And thanks to Reuben, they decided instead, well, let's not kill him. Let's make some profit out of this and sell him into slavery. And so Joseph's gone, but Jacob is told the story that some wild animal killed him. So he doesn't have that son anymore. Then Rachel conceives again and has another son. Well, again, Rachel is Jacob's beloved. This is his, his true love. And so her son is the most valuable of his children because of that. So he names the son. He's the son of my right hand. In fact, Rachel had a different name. because She named him son of my agony or son of my pain because she ended up dying in childbirth. Uh, so uh, Jacob obviously did not want that as a name to remember that. So he, this is his prized son, especially now that his true love is dead. So, um, so the right hand idea is someone very special, someone who is above all others, who is regarded and exalted above everybody else around them. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand in heavenly places. That says far above all principality and power and might and dominion. So. If you get the idea that this is above everything else that has any power, anything else that has any authority, that's true. That's where Christ is. He's far above that. Um, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So he's above every name. We're going to talk about name in a second here. Uh, so 
So Jesus Christ has been exalted because of what he did. And again, remember, uh, verse 20, we're coming into the story here, but you can see what he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Well, what happened before he was raised from the dead is that he died, he sacrificed himself for us. And so this all works together. Revelations 5, 11, and 12. We're going to be in Revelation a lot today. Who would like to read? Uh, go ahead, Abigail. So this is a scene in heaven. John's having a vision of heaven. And he sees this multitude, which he describes as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of creatures, whatever you want to call them there. And what are they doing? They're focused on one thing. They're focused on worshiping and exalting the Lamb. And the Lamb is Jesus Christ. The Lamb is the Son of God. And he's being exalted. He's being lifted up in heaven. That's his position. He's above all others. So he's highly exalted. And we see that in a number of places in Scripture. And these are just a couple of places. There's a lot of places where we can see this. Um, so therefore God has highly exalted him, and he's also given him the name which is above every name. So he has an ex elevated name. Now here's where we're going to talk about name a little bit. A name represents the essence and character of a person. Um, you see this again, if we go back to the Benjamin, there was a meaning behind the name. Jacob didn't just give him the name Benjamin because, hey, that sounds like a pretty neat name. I'm going to call him Ben or Benny. I think that's kind of fun. No, he, he chose this purposely because this represented something about his son that he wanted to tell everybody, that this is my prized son. This is the number one son I got right now. And so names, and nowadays, I don't know how people pick out names. Sometimes names are a little strange, and I wonder why did you choose that name? Um, I could talk about a little bit about some of my kids' names if I, if I wanted to. I could say Thomas is named after my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, and there's at least five straight generations, at least six straight generations that somebody has a name Thomas as a first name or a middle name in the family. It means something to me because it's a family name. Um, Nathan, actually, one of the reasons I like Nathan is I have a, a friend from high school, his name is Nathan, and he's a very godly man, and I really look up to him, and I thought that's that's such a testimony to him and his love for God. I want a son that's like that. And so that's where Nathan came from. So I could go through and tell you why we picked out some of the names we did. And some of them we did pick out because we just like the name. We do that. In the Bible, oftentimes, though, the names mean something, especially when you look at God's names. You know, you look at Adonai, Master. You look at... Uh, El Shaddai, the Lord who provides. His names represent something about him and teach us something about him. Well, here, Jesus is going to be given a name which is above every other name. It's a name that means something. It shows who he is, that he is the pinnacle. He's the ultimate. He is the preeminent one. And God, the Father, gives him a name that represents that. Um, so... Um, so the name which is above all others represents a person who is above all. That's who is above all others. That's his character. And the name that he has will represent that. Now, I put a couple of verses in here because we're going to get a name too. You know, it, it's an interesting thing. Let's look at Revelation 2.17. I can't even read this morning. Lynn, go ahead. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him will come, I will give 
So this is to him who overcomes. This is those who are faithful to God, who are living the way they're supposed to. When they get to heaven, they're going to get a white stone. On that stone is going to be a special name that you get from God that nobody else but you knows. And that's something special. It's probably going to be something about you. I mean, I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but especially since I don't know what anybody else is going to get. I don't even know what I'm going to get until I get there. But it's going to be this special name. It's going to, be, going to be a new name that you get. So this is not an unheard thing that people are going to get new names. Revelation 3.12 gives us another instance of that. Another reader, please. Revelation 3.12. Matt, go ahead. So here, we get a couple of names. First of all, we get to wear the name of God. And this, I think, represents that that's who we belong to. That's who we are a part of, that we are God's special people when we're in heaven. Um, we also get the name of the New Jerusalem on us. That's our citizenry. That's our, that where it represents where we're really from. And then on there, we also get a new name written on us. So... You're going to get a bunch of names when you're in heaven that you don't have now. And so the, the idea of having another name is not unheard of here. Now with uh, Jesus, we look at Psalm 89.27, and we look at that he is exalted, he's rewarded here. And Psalm 89.27 tells us that too. This is a messianic psalm, so let's read that, um, 89.27. Go ahead, Elizabeth. So this idea then, again, that God has highly exalted him. He'll make him his firstborn and make him uh, high, highest of the kings of the earth. This is Christ's position. So we see that Christ has been rewarded by God. Now, what's the result of this, that he is highly exalted in the name? He's given a name which is above every name. Well, I got two results here, and it probably doesn't need to be broken up. I did by verse, so that's just what happened. So number one result is that every knee bows. Um, so Philippians 2.10 says that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. So we see this at the name of Jesus. So this is going back to the name, the, his name, which represents who he is. Um, and it starts out with the word that. Um, when the Greek word hina, uh, which is so that in some translations, is used with a subjective verb, such as in this case, um, it introduces a purpose clause. Paul is therefore saying Jesus is given the name above every name uh, for the purpose that, or with the result that every knee will bow of those who are on, in heaven and on the earth and on the earth, and that every tongue will confess the supreme name of, the, of Jesus Christ, which is the Lord. Uh, so here we see that the purpose of him being given this name is that he's worshipped because of it, that he's honored because of it, that he's exalted because of it. And this is from MacArthur's commentary there. I gave you the page. Um, so that at the name of Jesus, these things would happen. And the first thing we see is that every knee shall bow. bow. Let's look at Isaiah 45, 22, and 23. Nathan, go ahead. Go to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. 
So here, this looks very familiar, right? Now this is God talking to Israel and, uh, through Isaiah. And he says, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Well, you see this and you see that God the Father is sharing the honor and glory that he deserves with Jesus Christ because of his obedience, because of his willingness to go and die for us, that Jesus Christ shares in this glory. And um, what's due to God the Father in Isaiah 45 is also due to the Son because he has been exalted, because he has been given this name. Um, so every knee shall bow. And the idea of bowing here is that, well, well what, what is the idea of bowing? They worship? Who, who do people bow to? Kings. Kings, yeah. So there's, there's an idea of acknowledging authority, right? There's the idea of honoring somebody in their position. Um, there, there's the idea of submitting to what somebody tells you. If, uh, and we don't have king, a lot of kings in the world that are super powerful anymore. That's kind of gone away for the most part, except for some places. Um, but if you want to think of medieval times, if you come before the king and the king commands something, what are you going to do? I like that command, king, but you know, today I'm, I think I have other important things to do, so I'm going to do this later, or maybe I won't do it at all. I'd, no, you're not going to say that, right? If the king commands you to do something, at that point he's, he's supreme, he's ultimate, you're going to do it. And so this bowing is an acknowledgement of his authority, of his his. Um, right to, to dictate what you do, of honoring him, of worshiping him, all these things. King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't asking people to say, you know, if you feel like it today, um, you can bow before my statue, but uh, I'm not going to command you because I don't know. He, he had the authority. He was going to, he was commanded them. They must do this or face the consequences. Um, and we uh, look at the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and see that they trusted God and were willing to obey God more than the king, uh, showing where they thought their allegiance was, who was actually supreme in that situation, and again, showing their faith. So that's a good, good tie in there. Um, so the idea of bowing is that you're acknowledging the authority of all those, of what those that you're bowing to. And then he says three groups are going to do this. Those in heaven. Um, we read... Revelation 5, um, and remember here this is talking about the ten thousands times ten thousands, the thousands of thousands that were worshiping God, worshiping Christ, worshiping the Lamb in heaven. So we know that that's true in heaven. There's going to be worship of Jesus Christ. There's going to be acknowledgement of his authority, of his position. And that's definitely true. Um, those on earth, I think that uh, for a lot of ways this is future, that when Christ returns, there's going to be an acknowledgement of who he is, and there's going to be an understanding of what his authority is. Second um, Thessalonians 1.10 talks about the church honoring Jesus, and um, when he comes, um, so let's read that there, Second uh, Thessalonians 1.10. Go ahead, Jonathan. So that day is, of course, the day of Christ when Christ returns. And it says here he's going to be glorified in his saints and be admired among those who believe. He's going to be acknowledged for who he is in that day when he returns, those on earth. And then those under the earth, most people take this as being um, those who are not saved, those who are going on to eternal punishment and lake of fire. 
he's going to be honored and going to be recognized and going to be acknowledged for who he is even by those people. Revelation 20, 11 through 13. Who would like to read? Uh, Olivia, go ahead. Now, you're probably looking at this and saying, what does this have to do with worshiping Christ, of acknowledging his authority? Well, who has the right to judge? The person who is sovereign and in authority, right? And the people that stand before him aren't going to make an argument like, you can't tell me what to do, you can't do this. They're going to stand before Christ, and they're going to have to acknowledge his judgment, and they're going to have to accept that, and they're going to know who Christ is, and that he does have authority to make this decision. And this uh, passage here we know from the context of it, these are unsaved people. These are people that are going to be judged that they have not trusted Christ as their Savior, and they're going to go on to eternal judgment in the lake of fire. But they're still going to stand before Christ, and they're going to acknowledge his authority, acknowledge that he is God, he is Lord, he is over all things. And that's part of what the judgment there is. Um, one more passage here before we move on to the last point. Revelation 5.13. One more reader, please. Nathan, go ahead. So, okay, so every creature which is in heaven, that covers the one point, right? And on the earth, covers another point, under the earth, as such as are in the sea, well, who would be in the sea? Yeah, if you're, if you're in the sea, you're not alive, right? So th this is like uh, in Revelation 20 where it says the sea gave up its dead. That, that's the idea here is that those who are dead and past. All these people are going to say blessing, honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So they're going to acknowledge, they're going to bend the knee to Jesus Christ because he's earned that position. So that's result number one, is that every knee bows. Result number two is every tongue confesses. I'm very sad because it looks like my blue is going out here. Um, side the point. So Philippians 2.11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, so the idea of confession here, the idea of confession is to agree, to admit, to acknowledge. Um, the passage we often go to when we think about confession is uh, 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us your, of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The idea they're confessing is just acknowledging. It's just saying, God, I am a sinner. This is what I've done. It has displeased you. It's agreeing with God about your sin. It's telling God that, hey, this is who I am. I understand that I don't meet your perfect standard. I have not. I've failed you. I've sinned against you. It's just an acknowledgement. And here the acknowledgement is that every tongue is going to confess. Every tongue is going to acknowledge. Every tongue is going to tell the truth about who Jesus is. And this pastor tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Um, I, I think this is kind of my personal opinion, so if you disagree with it, you, you can do that. Um, a lot of times when I see Lord in the New Testament, um, there's two Hebrew words that can be used for Lord. There's Adonai, which is kind of a master type of idea. And then, um, I'm going to spell this the Hebrew way. There's Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the I am. And the reason why this is oftentimes used as Lord and why we see the capital um, L-O-R-D in the Old Testament is because the Hebrews, in order not to blaspheme and use the name of God in vain, they would change Jehovah or Yahweh to Adonai and say it that way. Um, Paul here being a Hebrew writer, I think in his mind he's thinking this when he uses the word Lord. And this is my, my personal opinion. You can disagree with me on this. But if he is, look at what this passage is saying here, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Jehovah. He's the I am. He is God. I think that's what they're confessing to here. Not that, and, and not that it's not true that he's their master also. But I, I think they're acknowledging the deity of who Jesus Christ is. And that's my personal opinion. So they're confessing, they're agreeing, they're admitting to it, they're acknowledging that. Um, that he is Lord. Um, Romans 14, 11 uh, says a very similar thing to what we read here. We have somebody read that, Matt. What is it written as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And here you see that the word Lord is capitalized. Again, this is in the Greek. There's no Yahweh in the Greek, but they're quoting Old Testament where it is using Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and so looking at that passage and looking at what we're looking at here, the idea, I think, of, of Lord, that every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God that Jesus Christ is Lord, this Yahweh. So that's partially why I come to that conclusion. Again, you don't have to agree with me on that. I'm not going to stand that this is absolutely uh, important doctrine. You agree. If you disagree, that's fine. Um, so what are they, what is every tongue confessing? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, Acts 10.36. Isabel, go ahead. So as um, Peter here is explaining the gospel, and this is to the, the Roman centurion, um, he's saying that the word of God was preached to the children of Israel as preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And who's, this peace here is a kind of idea of peace with God, that you're reconciling with God. And he adds on to his gospel witness, oh, by the way, Jesus is Lord of all. It's, just, it's true. It's, it's what's real. Jesus is Lord. So this is what is being confessed here, that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't think I need, this is the third time today, I don't think I need to convince any of you here that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think we can all acknowledge it, right? Um, so I'm going to move on here. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then letter B, this is done to the glory of God the Father. So John 13, 31. Another reader, please. Nathan, go ahead. So the Son of Man is glorified. 
and God is glorified in him. So as Jesus is glorified, God the Father is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. If God's glorified in Jesus Christ, God's going to glorify himself through Jesus Christ, and that um, he will glorify him immediately. So God the Father's glory is shown as Jesus Christ is glorified. And so that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that brings glory to God the Father. Um, John fifteen or John five twenty two and twenty three. Who would like to read? Go ahead, Lynn. For the Father's judgment is now mine, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And here we see that word honor here is used kind of in the same way here, but you can't honor one or the other. You have to honor, if you honor the Father, you're going to honor the Son. If you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. It's tied together. So giving Jesus Christ the glory, acknowledging his lordship, acknowledging who he is, naturally just glorifies the Father. Um, a couple of verses I put here kind of outside, because um, I think this ties up the whole passage here a little bit. Hebrews 12.2. Uh, we'd like to read that, Ted. Go ahead. So who for the joy that was set before him, because the outcome of this is a joyful thing, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and because of that, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we talked about the right hand being a place of honor, a place of uh, being acknowledged here. And so this kind of sums up this whole Philippians 2 part that he endured the shame, he endured uh, the cross, and as a result of that, he's being honored and, and lifted up and exalted. First uh, Peter 1.10, another passage that talks a little bit about this. Lemuel, go ahead. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully to prophesy of the Messiah that would come and they just to us or what manner of time the Spirit supplied to us in them was exceedingly testified and testimony for sufferings of Christ and glory of the Father. So here Peter's talking about that the prophets of old, they were they were looking forward to the time that Christ would come, and they knew not only that he was going to suffer, but that he would also be glorified to follow. That's uh, what we see here. Okay, so my takeaway. So th this is, we looked at this, and we looked at this in terms of Christ and the theology around uh, Christ's exaltation after he humbled himself, after he emptied himself, after he became obedient to the point of death. But remember, this is in the context of let this mind be in you, which is also in Jesus Christ. So I think this section is in that context of that. Um, so there has to be an application to us personally. I think since Christ's selfless, humble attitude leads to obedience, and his obedience leads to his exalting, it goes to follow that when we humble ourselves and obediently serve Christ, Christ will in turn, and I'm going to use the, the term I don't like, reward us. But he's going to bless us for that. He's going to, uh, there's going to be a point to all this. And you know, you could sit here and you could look at this passage and go, um, you know, let me uh, think of others as more important than myself. Let me look out for the interests of others. Let me have the selfless mind of Christ. And you'd be like, well, that seems like a lot of work. That seems like a lot of hard things. And what about me? What about me in this? And that's, that's a wrong attitude, obviously. You'd be selfish. But 
you know, I'm going to do all this and I'm going to serve others, what's going to be the outcome of this? And I think the Bible tells us that as we serve Christ, Christ blesses us. And kind of in the same way that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of the cross and God has exalted him, there is a benefit to doing what God wants us to do. And I, I put three verses that kind of talk a little bit about this. And it doesn't give specifics. It doesn't mean that when you serve Christ that he's going to bless you with a million dollars or an easy life. We learned today that you're probably going to have trials um, and mostly to grow you and to prove your faith and to help you to grow more like Christ. That's what those trials are there for. So it doesn't mean life's going to be easy. But I think, and I'll put it this way, I think, um, you know, just as uh, Norman said about um, that God, um, and I want to put this right, that God wants, is willing to get you out of that trial. God is willing to help you through that trial. I think God is willing to bless you as you serve him and as you honor him. So uh, let's look at these three verses here. Matthew 23, 11, and 12. Who would like to read? Lynn, go ahead. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So it starts out, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. So you want to be great in the kingdom of God. You need to be serving others. And if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. If you try to put yourself ahead of everybody else, if you try to put yourself on a higher level than everybody else, you're going to be humbled. That's what it says here, right? But he who humbles himself, humbles himself and, and is the servant type person, what's God going to do? It says he will exalt him. It doesn't say he might exalt him. It, might, it doesn't say that, you know, maybe if he works hard enough or do this or that or whatever, you know, God might think about it. No, it says he will exalt him if he humbles himself. Say, well, that's one passage. Let's look at another one, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. Ted, go ahead. Likewise, the younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. And for God, for God is just the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He may exalt you in due time. So this passage talks a lot about submission. That means that instead of demanding your will, you're going to submit to others and what they want. And we're supposed to submit, be submissive to one another. That says to be clothed with humility. Does this sound familiar? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So first of all, if you humble yourself, you're going to have God's grace working in your life. That's a good thing. But Peter goes on to say, Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. Now he adds, in due time, it might not happen right away, it might not happen tomorrow, it might not happen instantaneously. But there's going to be an exaltation as you humble yourself and you're obedient to God. One more passage, James 4.10. Make sure one go ahead, Olivia. There's a little chorus that sometimes we sing that says that, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Um, and he will lift you up. So I, I think even though, you know, we look at what God did with Christ and we look at that and say, well, we're not going to get the position Christ has. We're not going to be given a name above every name. Nobody's going to bow to us and confess to us and that type of stuff. That obviously does not happen, but there's a principle there that as you're obedient, as you're humble, as you have the right mindset, as you're doing what God wants you to do, 
He wants to bless you. Now, we should do it just because we should want to do it. We should do it because of what Christ did for us. We should do it because it's the right thing to do and it pleases God. But that doesn't mean we can't be thankful for the benefit that comes around because of it. And so that's what I have as a takeaway, because I think sometimes we miss that in this passage, that this passage is about our obedience. It's about our mindset. This is about us being humble and unselfish and serving those around us. So... Um, that's what I got this morning. Any thoughts or questions or concerns?